Hello, and welcome to the Sharpened Iron Podcast. I am happy to have you here. I started the Sharpened Iron blog in 2016 in order to build an online community that discussed the most important issues in life, religion, politics, and culture. In broadcasting my blog now, I hope to engage with friends old and new in pursuit of truth. If you like this episode or have any feedback, please leave a review on your favorite podcast player. Leave a comment on sharpenediron.org or email me directly at contact at sharpenediron.org. Let's jump in. Last time in this space, I covered the spiritual and theological questions that began to unwind the threads of my lifelong evangelical Christian faith. Those questions brewed in the background of my mind from approximately 2012 to 2015. Through the process of reading, thinking, and praying, I came to acknowledge the possibility that an authoritative church hierarchy, formal liturgy with set prayers, and beautiful architecture could have some value for the church. Note that for me at the time, Big C Church meant invisible, universal body of believers in Christ from all nations and denominations of Christianity. I was still fairly agnostic on which denomination was right, and I wasn't actually all that concerned about finding the answer. I knew my influences hailed from numerous denominations— Reformed Baptist, Anglican, Pentecostal, non-denominational, Eastern Orthodox, and Catholic. Since I assumed no church could have the fullness of the Christian faith, I thought they all had some real insight into what could be known of true Christianity. I figured my quasi-ecumenical, quasi-intellectual, Reformed Calvinism was as close to a correct interpretation of Scripture as one could get. And if I could attend a church that provided community, prayer, and scripture-based teaching, I was fine with that. In my personal life during those years, I had gone from depressed newlywed college graduate without a career direction to a hopeful near-graduate PA student with a happy marriage and two young children. My interest in Christianity had recovered, and I started becoming interested in Catholicism, Orthodoxy, and other old denominations of Christianity for the reasons I discussed in the third post of this series. This interest amounted to little more than a few conversations with my wife about visiting one or two of them someday. At the time, my questions about church authority and the structure of worship seemed to me to be problems needing to be solved within the framework of evangelical Protestantism, but they never reached the level of a crisis of faith. The Trump campaign of 2015 to 2016 led me to question whether or not any flaws I saw in evangelicalism were inherent to its very existence. I want to pause to note that a shocking event can quickly cause a group of people to move from reasonably satisfied with the situation to completely and angrily dissatisfied. Political polling, because of its frequency and ubiquity, shows how the handling of a major event can turn support into vehement opposition, and vice versa. Consider how George W. Bush polled shortly after 9-11, or more recently, how President Biden's approval ratings across numerous categories plummeted after the withdrawal from Afghanistan, 
One shocking event can cause a person to become profoundly disillusioned of prior beliefs and reevaluate every prior commitment. Now, let's talk Trump. I thought I was somewhat attuned to politics in the years after my college graduation, but I was not at all prepared for the political upheaval in the conservative evangelical world in 2015 and 2016. I, like nearly all political observers at the time, did not think Donald Trump's candidacy was serious, nor did I expect the Republican electorate to get behind him in the primaries. But suddenly he became the inevitable Republican nominee for president in 2016. Trump's nomination, I thought at the time, would finally be the moment for evangelical Christians to drop the Republican Party and assert themselves with a third-party candidate whose morality would meet the criteria for a good presidential candidate. Prior to 2015, I had heard of many evangelicals in my orbit who would not vote for Mitt Romney because he was a Mormon. Surely Donald Trump would not garner the support of the same people. I suppose I don't need to tell anyone how that prediction worked out. I watched in shock as evangelical leaders like Jerry Falwell Jr. promoted Donald Trump. The man whose father sued Hustler magazine for defamation took a picture in Trump's office in front of a framed Playboy magazine with Trump on the cover. Trump claimed he was a Christian and said he had never asked God for forgiveness once. But when Trump became the inevitable GOP nominee, Falwell Jr. compared Trump to King David. Falwell Jr. may be the most ridiculous Trump-supporting evangelical out there, and in hindsight, taking anything he said seriously was my mistake. He is no serious theologian, but at the time he did lead the largest evangelical university in the United States. His position and his family name gave his words significant weight, and he was hardly alone in abusing scripture and church history in support of the least Christian nominee in modern history. Why did this matter so much to me? My first memory of politics was the Bill Clinton impeachment. I was in grade school at the time, and I did not follow the hearings, though I do distinctly remember turning on the TV each evening during the hearings and being annoyed that sports or something more exciting was not available. I remember hearing plenty of talk radio during the impeachment process and wondering why it was such a big deal. Thankfully, given my age, I didn't really understand the details of the Clinton impeachment situation, but I knew the president had cheated on his wife. President Clinton's faithlessness was a massive scandal for conservative Christians who preached constantly against divorce and sex outside of marriage. This was the era of purity rings and I kissed dating goodbye, and the church was in the midst of a serious panic about what Christians should do about the rapidly changing sexual ethics in the surrounding culture. In the midst of this, not only did the religious right's biggest political enemy commit the sin of adultery, he lied about it to the American people. I remember being taught that this impeachment process was not so much about partisan politics, but an issue of character. Character matters was the mantra of the time. Evangelicals rightly asked, how could a president who was unfaithful to his wife faithfully execute the office of the presidency. This event shaped my political outlook for the next 18 years. 
The Clinton impeachment scandal intertwined the political and religious so perfectly in my earliest memories, I suppose it would be impossible for things to be otherwise. Again, probably owing to my young age, I did not realize the hypocrisy and moral failings of the Republicans leading the impeachment fight would significantly undermine the case for the removal of the president. Nonetheless, from the time of that impeachment until 2015, I thought the goal of evangelical involvement in politics was to elect evangelical Christians and shape the morality of the nation. Readers can easily guess, then, what I thought of Republican presidential candidates from 2000 to 2012. George W. Bush was a decent man from a good family who frequently talked about his Christian faith. I thought, in my 12-year-old mind, that George W. Bush's presidency would lead America into a fourth great awakening. John McCain defended the right to life more than any other senator. Having grown up with many wonderful Mormon families, I figured Mitt Romney probably had stronger family values than even I did. Republican politics was easy for me as an evangelical because I could pretty much justify any vote for any Republican so long as they claimed some sort of Christian-ish faith and, above all, vowed to fight abortion. I give this background to demonstrate my bewilderment at the Trump phenomenon within evangelicalism, though I admit much more of the reason for my upset and disgust with evangelical behavior in support of Trump in 2016 had to do with my naive overconfidence in my own wisdom and misunderstanding of the political situation at the time. Against this background, down the escalator of Trump Tower comes the thrice-married serial adulterer who promoted pornography, endorsed late-term abortion, and frequented Howard Stern to say he wants to be president of the United States as a Republican. The choice, I thought, was quite easy for evangelical Christians. We had 15 other candidates to choose from, and none of them did any of that, at least not openly. The majority of people who taught me in my formative years seemed to think this guy was great. A minority were disgusted, but they felt as helpless as me watching Trump roll through the primaries. What could an evangelical do once he obtained the nomination? Vote for Hillary Clinton? The Trump campaign in 2016 caused upheaval in many quarters, and the national media really could not understand why evangelicals ended up almost uniformly lining up behind Trump. The national media includes almost no evangelical Christians, and most media-friendly evangelicals tend to be more liberal than the media and church-going evangelical. While mainstream media could not understand a dogmatic commitment to the right to life or Christian principles, I could not understand the fanaticism for Trump that I saw in some evangelical circles, given Trump represented neither of those things. I have alluded previously to the fact that what disoriented me about the Trump phenomenon in the evangelical movement was the enthusiasm of many prominent evangelicals. The aforementioned Jerry Falwell Jr., Franklin Graham, Eric Metaxas, all surprised me by the enthusiasm with which they supported Donald Trump. In 2016, what could be known about Trump's politics was not particularly conservative, and his personal life was certainly not Christian. The circles in which I normally associated were not particularly pro-Trump per se, but I realized the evangelical world had no way of organizing or disciplining those in prominent roles 
for debasing themselves and the faith they represented. Around the same time, the unrepentant Donald Trump was simultaneously being cast by conservative evangelicals as King David, King Cyrus, and Emperor Constantine, not conservative and very popular blogger Jen Hatmaker was coming out as an LGBT ally. For me, I started to see that low church Protestantism was by default a choose-your-own-adventure religion, having no official hierarchy outside of each individual church or congregation. I was on my own to pick my favorite interpretation of Scripture, my favorite application of that Scripture, my favorite political team, and the only thing that could stop me was my own conscience. The Trump phenomenon of 2015 and 2016 did not cause me to become Catholic, but it was the final push I needed to start exploring different traditions within Christianity. Before Trump, disillusionment with evangelical Christianity had already begun to strike my generation due primarily to social issues. Since Trump, this has accelerated. Survey data indicate millennial evangelicals increasingly reject the foundations of the faith in which they were raised, and my experience certainly aligns with that. I have God to thank that I did not see the failings of the evangelical world and walk away from Christianity completely like so many of my generation. I certainly understand the depth of disappointment many young evangelicals experienced in the 2010s. That said, the four years of Donald Trump's presidency also revealed how foolish and naive I was during the 2015 to 2016 campaign. While I wish evangelical leaders could have made arguments for or against their preferred candidate with honesty and fidelity to the scriptures, I realized that I was naively optimistic about our culture and the power of free exchange of ideas to redeem our nation. The Trump campaign was for me the beginning of a years-long process of evaluation, re-evaluation, commitment, and recommitment to many ideas. I know I was not alone in this, as the upheaval was not confined to my soul alone. I know of many evangelical pastors whose followers chased them from their vocations, directly or indirectly. The years following the 2016 presidential primaries wreaked havoc on evangelical congregations around the nation, revealing the treasures many held in their hearts. In the process of reevaluating my own commitment to evangelicalism, I found it wanting in many ways and wanted something that could stand the test of time. Therefore, I started my re-evaluation process with the church whose parishioners had opened my eyes to its ancient beauty and transcendence. I liked what little I knew about the history, beauty, and structure of the Catholic Church, but Catholics believed a whole bunch of things I did not think were biblical. If I could prove the Catholic Church teaches made-up, unbiblical, or idolatrous doctrines, maybe I could remain a faithful evangelical, respectful of the Church of Rome. In order to figure out what to do, I decided I must learn from Catholics what the Catholic Church believes and try to answer for myself the most important question about any religion. Is it true? We'll see you next time. This concludes this episode of the Sharpened Iron Podcast. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, 
please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast player to receive an update whenever a new episode is released. To receive updates about Sharpened Iron, subscribe to the blog by email at www.sharpenediron.org. If you have any questions, have recommendations for future discussion topics, or want to discuss anything further, please contact me at contact at sharpenediron.org. Thank you, and may God bless you as you seek the truth.